As we continue to hear from Megan about her kidnapping, it's important to remember that she was just 14 years old. Sadly, people choose to question the actions of victims or the victim's family, but it usually stems from their own fears. They might wonder, what did the victim do wrong? If I can just figure out what they did wrong, maybe I can prevent it from ever happening to me. But really, the only person to blame and question here is the perpetrator, not the victim. It can be heartbreaking for someone who has been through such a traumatic event to be asked why they didn't do something differently. So as we continue to hear Megan's story, let's approach it with kindness and empathy. She has shown tremendous bravery, remaining calm and composed despite facing immense pressure. That's definitely something worth commending rather than questioning. This is She's Missing. This podcast discusses criminal behavior, kidnapping, assault, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. We ask that if you know Megan or her family, that you continue to help protect her identity. It was just, it was horrible. I just remember just being sick to my stomach. And I won't go into all of that, but it's kind of embarrassing. It's, it's a very personal thing to have to go through that. And I feel bad for any victim that has to go through that because it's, it is, it's very humiliating. It's, I think, and part of that, I think, is that healing process of determining when you're okay with certain things. I think uh, the only other thing that I would really say is like, you know, a lot of people want to know like what happens and like the dark side of that story. I just, I don't really ever share it because it doesn't matter. I mean, you can figure it out and it wasn't anything that I feel like I want to focus on. So I should never really share that. To me, it's more of the positive that I want to share with the world. I don't need to focus on the dark side, so. Although Megan is not recounting the darker details, she has an incredible story to share. She truly is a beacon of hope to anyone who has been through a traumatic experience. We probably got to his house, I want to say, about 3 o'clock in the morning or something like that. When you got back, you said you were really cold. Did he let you warm up? Was his house really cold too? I I was I did take a bath, so that helped, but I was still I think nerves and everything too. And I just had my sandals on, so and even though it was summertime, it's I don't know, it's still June. It was definitely chilly. I remember that for sure being cold. And you didn't have a jacket or anything. You were just in like yeah, I was pajamas. in my dare t-shirt. <laughs> Dang it. Say no. Well, at one point, so I had asked him if I could go use the restroom. So we walked down the hall and as we had come back, he had, honestly, his place was trashed. Like he, it was really messy, but he had guns everywhere. He had like gun racks and I don't even know stuff. Dirty, like just stuff, cluttery, very cluttery. But I, I don't remember the kitchen being bad or any of the other rooms. Like they were all decent, but his room, he just had 
stuff everywhere. So um, right by his door, heading into the rest of the house, of course, there's a gun rack up there. And so I thought, oh, I'll grab one of those guns and I can hit him. So as I'm walking back into the bedroom, I grabbed a gun and I went to hit him with it, but he was already on to me. And so as he grabbed the gun, I ran to the door to try and get out and it was locked and it was one of those stupid like push turn ones and I couldn't like get it unlocked in time so I didn't get out but he grabbed me and I remember he threw his my arm back up behind my back and basically said that he would play nice if I did but if I was gonna act like that then he wouldn't be nice and so I'm like okay fine like I'll be good. So I just always push the bubble just just a little bit to see what I could get away with. But so that one didn't work. So for whatever reason, like he pulls this video out, this VHS tape, and he puts it in. And she was so young. I remember just like a toddler. And he's totally just like molesting this girl from, I mean... If she was maybe four, I don't know. She's so tiny. And it was just like no big thing. Like, that's just how it was. And I remember just being like horrified by that. And then he put in another one. And as soon as he did, I recognized who she was. And that's, and I was like, oh my goodness. So that's when I started asking him, like, what's her name? And he told me her name. And I'm not going to say it just... For her privacy but I remember I asked him like oh she's really pretty where does she go to school and he told me it was the same school as me and I saw her every day like in the hall every day and we weren't really friends but we just ran in different groups but I was just like I can't believe this is happening like this poor girl's been going through this like her whole entire life I think about her all the time and I'd love to just give her a hug one day. We don't even have to say anything. I just, I'd love to just give her a hug and just let her know, like, I just love and care about her and I hope she's doing well and that I think what a strong person she is. I just hope she's been able to find healing and I just hope that she's in a good place now. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? We often go about our daily lives unaware of the intense battles people are silently fighting all around us. In this case, seeing the girl from the videos and recognizing her as a classmate had a profound impact on Megan. The details that Megan just recounted were only shared with permission from the girl herself, whom I had the chance to interview. The fact that she was willing to share such a personal experience demonstrates her incredible bravery. Looking ahead, we can anticipate hearing from her directly in a future episode, and I believe that will provide us with a whole new level of comprehension for what both she and Megan had to endure. It's an opportunity for us to gain deeper insight and empathy towards their shared, unimaginable ordeal. So... Again, I'm, I'm quizzing him more. I'm just trying to get as much information. I asked him, I'm like, were you the one who took Amber Hoops? And he 
told me it was it was really weird. He kind of looked away when I asked the question, and then he turned back to me and he's like, no. As a reminder, Amber Hoops went missing sometime in the night on September 14th, 2001 in Idaho Falls. She was 20 years old at the time, and her disappearance is still unsolved to this day. And I just said, okay. You said that you killed people before, so what do you mean by that? Like, you said it's just pretty easy. He's like, well, once you, I, I swear he said something about being in the military and killing people. And that once you do it, like, it just becomes like not a big deal anymore. Like you just get used to it. So I was like, okay, that makes sense. And this whole time, like he told me that after the three days that he was going to take me home. So this whole time I'm thinking like, Hey, I'm going to go home. And I wanted to believe that. So I believed that in those moments, you'll take any little bit of light you can get because you don't, you don't know. So I really thought it was going to happen. Now, obviously looking back, I know that would have never happened. And that's silly and naive to believe that, but I clung to that. I asked him, I'm like, what do you want me to say to everybody when this happens? Because, I mean, like, I've been gone for three days, dude. Like, and he just, he'd kind of blow it off. Like, well, they don't really need to know or something. Like, he never really gave me, like, a good answer for that. But I know full well now that that was never the intention. Like, I was very clearly never coming home. It's truly hard to fathom, isn't it? Put yourself in Megan's shoes for a second. You've been taken from your family in the dead of night by someone you know you can't trust. It's an incredibly scary situation. On one hand, you're fully aware that placing trust in this person is out of the question. But on the other hand, considering the alternative is almost too much to bear. If you accept the fact he's lying, it means accepting that you might never see your family again. Never return home. However, if you can manage to hold on to even a glimmer of hope, entertaining the idea that he might be telling the truth, it gives you something to cling to. It becomes a lifeline, a reason to keep fighting and pushing forward. That tiny spark of hope becomes your source of strength amidst the darkness. It's a difficult and heart-wrenching situation to be in, but that thread of hope can make all the difference. I'm... I'm fighting, like, I kind of push things a little bit, but then I knew, I obviously don't want to take it too far because I don't want worst case scenario here, but I'm also human, and I also know that this individual's human in there somewhere, and so you're trying to, like, I guess that's the thing, like, you want them to feel human and you're trying I don't know you're just trying to bring that out of them I guess so I did like I said I asked a lot of questions like what about this what about this Uh, like where do you work all these things like so much stuff but in reality I don't I just want out of there I don't care what happens to this person but I'm trying to not get myself in more trouble 
Oh, and another thing I had asked him was how did you know that there were kids at our house? And so he had mentioned that he had drove by earlier that day and then had seen our sleeping bags and everything out on the trampoline. So he stopped by that night and it was about 10.30 when my dog was barking and he heard my dad yell at the dog. And so he left and came back later. And he said that he was planning on taking my sister because she was on the end, but I actually rolled over and woke up. And so I was the one that ended up going. So we ended up going to sleep for a few hours that night. And he had a waterbed, like a big king-sized waterbed with just a wooden frame and like the wood shelving headboard. So I remember he had gone out to his garage and his bedroom was like, it was almost like it was added on to the back of the house. It was at the same right next door to the garage. So he stepped out and he came back and he had an eye bolt and he drilled that into the side of the bed where I was. And then he took zip ties and he just linked it off the eye bolt and then put it around my wrist. I guess we slept for a couple hours. Like, you don't really sleep that good. <laughs> but um, he had woke up the next morning and told me that he had tried to call in sick for work, but they wouldn't let him and told him that he needed to come in. It's a tender mercy in the midst of a nightmare when Megan's captor is told he has to go to work. This will give her a reprieve from her captor. However, this was absolutely not part of his original plan. Now he's confronted with the task of implementing additional measures to prevent Megan from escaping. It presents a new challenge that requires him to think quickly and find ways to secure her and ensure that she remains confined while he is at work. I told him at one point, I'm like, so, you know, if... Like, if I were to get away, I brought up something about that. And he's like, you don't even know where you are. And I was like, yes, I do. Because in my mind, like, I don't, I do too. We're just down the road from my dad's business. Like, I know right where I am. And then I catch myself and I realize, well, I don't want him to know that. So he's like, oh, really? Where are we? And I was just like, at your house, duh. Like, I know. I, like, I had to be so quick with what I said and timing and everything. But again, I'm, I'm still trying to get as much information out of him as I can. As, as he's getting ready, of course, I only have this one zip tie around my right wrist, basically. So then he goes out to the garage and he gets more eye bolts and he drilled one at the top of, like at the head of the bed, and then for my other arm to go. And then he drilled two at the bottom of the bed where my feet went. And then he did one on the side of the bed. And so he told me, he's like, you can pick how you lay, but you can't have your arms together. So I always lay on my side. So I put my right hand just in an L shape with it, just directly above my head. And then my left hand was just across my body to the side. And then my feet, he just took a chain and linked it between the two eye bolts and then took zip ties off of that and linked them up to my ankles. 
So I think like that's pretty good. We're not, I'm not breaking out of these zip ties. I'm pretty sure of that. And then he um, goes out to the garage one more time and he comes back with this chain and he brings it back in and he's like, do you want this around your neck or your waist? And I remember thinking like, what are you crazy? Which we know he was, but I, <laughs> I did. I told him like, listen, I'm pretty sure I'm not getting out of this. So I don't think I need that chain. And he was like, well, you're going to have it. So you can pick either your neck or your waist. And I just looked at him like so disgusted. And I was like, well, I'm not an animal. So if you're going to put it around me, you can just put it around my waist. And so he, on the one that he drilled in the side of the bed, he put it through that eye bolt and then wrapped it around my waist and it had a a link with the little screw thing, I don't know, <laughs> thread on it and put that around my waist. So then he put earplugs in my ear, duct tape in my mouth. Another thing he told me is that he had ordered um, handcuffs, but they hadn't come yet. It's truly disturbing to think about. This specific detail sheds light on the depth of this man's depravity. It becomes clear that his actions were not impulsive or random. Long before he ever spotted Megan and her sisters working outside, he had already devised this sinister plan. It was premeditated, calculated, and chilling. He was a hunter, actively seeking out his prey. It's a disgusting realization that someone could harbor such malevolence and plan out such heinous acts. Anyways, I, uh, he leaves for work. And this whole time, like, I'm just by myself thinking, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm continually just like, God, you got to help me. Like, I can't, I can't do this. I just want to go home. I just want to see my family. Well, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I just need you right now. And it was like I just kept getting nothing. It was so frustrating. And I'd kind of drift off for, off to sleep for a little bit. And then I'd wake up. I'd kind of look around, but I don't know. And from the position I was laying, I was actually able to just bring my hand down a little bit and put my head up. And I ripped the duct tape off and I pulled the earplugs out of my ears. And I threw them on the side of the bed. And I remember thinking, like, that was stupid. I that <laughs> Nice try, but that didn't work. So at one point, um, I'd woke up again and there was a, just a stack of these magazines right next to the bed on these poorly built shelves. And so I pulled one of them down and I start flipping through it and I'm like, what in the world? And I realize what it is. So I throw it off the bed and I grab another one and then I realize it's the same thing and they're just stacks of porn, like stacks of porn magazines is all it was. So I was like, well, yeah, so I'm not looking at that. So I quit looking at those. I remember drifting off to sleep again a little bit more. I woke up and uh, on his headboard, he had an alarm clock. So, and it was one of those ones with the radio on it. So I turned it on just to see if my name was out there, if anyone was looking for me at this point. 
and there was nothing. So I turned that off. And then he had this little woven basket and in it was a bunch of mail. So I picked up that basket and I got his name and his address. So now I know exactly where I am. So I memorize that and I go to sleep. And the next time I wake up again, I'm just praying like, God, please save me. Like, I need you. I can't do this. And as I, every time I pulled on these zip ties, but nothing happened. And this time I pull my right hand, I just pull it down and the zip tie just snaps. And I remember like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like my heart just starts pounding and I'm just thinking like, holy cow, I got to get out of here. And I reach down and I grab the one on my left hand and I snap it off. And then I sit up and I snap the ones off my bottom feet and I didn't even struggle with them. Like they literally just snapped. Honestly, the only thing that makes any sense whatsoever is it was definitely God intervened and did all of that because there's no way, even those zip ties, like to this day, I cannot break them. I've tried. I cannot do it. And just to turn and just snap them like I did, there's no way to to even do that. Like usually you have to struggle with them. But, and like I said, I kind of struggled with them every time I had a chance, but I never really tried hard because one, they just cut into your wrist. And I did. I had little marks from where they had rubbed into me. But two, I just didn't expect them to break. So it was kind of wishful thinking at the time until it happened. And then it was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening right now. Let's take a second to discuss something significant about Megan, her size. She remembers being around five feet tall. She had a very slight build and weighed between 80 to 90 pounds. Needless to say, she was tiny. Given these factors, her ability to break free from the zip ties is nothing short of miraculous. And I stand up and I have this chain around my waist and I'm thinking like, okay, how in the world am I going to get out of this? And now I'm paranoid because he's going to come home at any minute and I... I'm going to be standing here like half out of this when I already just told him like, I'm not getting out of these zip ties. I don't need this chain. And yet this chain is clearly the only thing that's holding me back right now. So I start looking around the room like, okay, what can I do to break this chain? And I grabbed this lamp off his headboard and I was so dumb because it was the ceramic lamp, but I start banging on this chain and the lamp just shatters. And I just pick up all the pieces and I put them back up in a pile on the headboard. And I don't even know why in the moment, but I just made a mess. So I had to hurry and clean it up. So I pick up all these pieces and I put them back. And then I'm like, okay, on to the next thing. I'm looking for a gun. And I'm like, I could just shoot it if I can get a gun. Because that's what they do in the movies. But it was probably better for me. I couldn't reach any guns. So had this old, I don't know if it was a wood burning fireplace or a pellet stove or something, but he had this old fireplace by his bed and with some brick just down on the floor. And I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking, but he had, it was stacked with stuff. Like there was stuff all over the top of it. So it wasn't, he wasn't even using it, but there's this fire extinguisher that's laying there for whatever reason. 
and I just start banging on it. But of course, like I'm not banging on the brick, which would make sense. I'm banging on the carpet. And I remember just pounding to death on it. And all of a sudden I get one of the links to break, but I can't, it would like kind of start to separate open and then it would fold back in. And I was getting so frustrated because I'm like, oh, I have to get out of here. Like he's going to come home. And finally, like it was, I probably banged on it for about 10 minutes and I reached down and it was warm. I remember that. And I was able to just pry it open enough that I unhooked myself and I ran up to the door that led into the kitchen. Well, as I went to get into that, go through the kitchen, that door of course is locked. So I had to body slam it open and it was just an old rickety door. So nothing crazy, but I body slammed that open. I run into the kitchen. I grabbed the phone and I called my dad's secretary. And I I call her. I'm like, hey, um, Misty, you got to come get me right now. Like, this is the address. I'm just across the street. And she said, Megan, where are you? Like, we've been looking everywhere for you. And I'm like, Misty, I'm at this address. Like, you've got to come get me right now. And I hung up the phone on her. And then I'm like, okay, what do I do? Like, I don't think I should stay, but I got to go. But I don't know what to do. So I finally, I run out of the back of the house. And as I, as I did, I yelled back to him not to mess with me. This podcast was produced by me, Emily. Be sure to stay tuned until the end to hear a preview from the next episode. While the timeline may not be exact, the facts of this case are laid out as close as the memories of those involved allowed. You can find additional information on our website, she'smissingpodcast.com. She's Missing is a Search Party Media production. If you have any information about the disappearance of Amber Hoops, please contact Bonneville County Sheriff's Office by calling 208-529-1200 or by going to ifcrime.org. I slam on the brakes because somebody's running from a bush and to, towards my car. So I'm like, oh my gosh, that is Megan. And she, I just remember seeing this chain, big, the biggest chain I've ever seen, wrapped around her waist and she jumps in and I just hold her. And I'm sitting there just holding her. And I'm like, I have your dad on the phone. Talk to him. <laughs>